0: Uh, That I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to God's word, Mark chapter 15, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud, loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabathiani, which means, my God. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he also rolled a a stone in front of the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. You may be seated. Last week, as we began to look at these verses that tell us about the crucifixion, of Christ, We saw that Christ stood firm in the face of mockery, in the face of humiliation, and in the face of pain. Now as we finish Mark's account of the death of Christ, we see that he shows extraordinary love toward us in his willingness to remain on the cross and his willingness to die there in our place. We see that that he is willing to endure the hardship of the cross and he does so because of his great love for us, his extraordinary love, his love that is unmatched by anyone else. These verses, the death and ultimately the resurrection of Christ, are the focal points of all four gospel accounts. Though they at different places show similarities, though at different places they they concentrate on different material, the focal point of all four is the death and ultimate resurrection of Christ. As we look at this, we should look at this passage understanding that the cross is the place where our salvation was won by Christ, where he stood firm and committed himself to the cross so that we could have life. He endures death. He faces death so that you and I have the opportunity to have life in Christ with our heavenly Father. The cross is one of these oddities because it it is this place of death and destruction and yet we understand it as a place of life. Just yesterday for Valentine's Day, I gave my wife a, a necklace with a cross on it. And if you think about what that would have symbolized before the death of Christ, that would have been something you simply did not do. There were were no Roman men who were giving necklaces with a cross on it to their wife as a symbol of their love. Because it was a place of death and destruction. And yet, you and I understand it now, some 2,000 years later, as a place of redemption and forgiveness and love. The cross is an odd thing. Paul would write to the church at Corinth in his first letter there in chapter 1. At the beginning of the letter, he writes about the cross. He writes about its, seemingly, its seeming foolishness, if you will, to the world. we see in these verses this morning the power that god demonstrates to us through this instrument of torture we've come to call the cross we look this morning at at christ's death and subsequent offer of salvation he has been offering salvation throughout his ministry and that salvation is realized as we see the cross there carrying out its final deed, the death of our Savior. We see in the first verses of this passage, Christ's separation from God. And then we see that that separation from God ultimately offers salvation from God. As a matter of fact, in His final breath, salvation is realized. And then we see at the end of this passage the responses the responses to this offer of salvation. First let's begin in verse 33 as we look at Jesus taking on the separation that we deserve. Jesus takes on the separation from God that we deserve. The Bible paints this horrific Picture, Jesus has now been on the cross for many hours. He's hanging there, slowly dying. And in the sixth hour, darkness falls over the earth. Something that had been foretold in the book of Amos, chapter 8 and verse 9. Darkness would cover the earth. There are those who go and, and try to figure out you know, how, this, how this worked on the, on the calendar, how there was uh, some type of uh, eclipse at this point, uh, if, if that is the, the scientific explanation, and, and all of those things are fine and well, but highly irrelevant. If God doesn't want to carry this out when there is a scheduled eclipse, He doesn't have to, there's no requirement. The earth falls dark. For three hours it is is darkness covering the land as Christ hangs there on the cross. This visual demonstration of the solitude that He has. This visual demonstration of the separation that has now come between Him and God as He hangs there on the cross bearing our sin. As he hangs there on the cross, the, the sin and the wickedness of the world placed upon him, he sits there, or hangs there rather, in darkness. The Bible tells us at the end of this period, he, he draws his last breath. Mark cares so much about what Jesus says here, that he actually records for us the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. The New Testament is originally written in Greek, but there are some places like this one, especially when Jesus is being quoted, that the gospel writer actually quotes what he says in the language of Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. And so there is such care being taken by Mark as he is writing this for us that he actually records for us the original language that Jesus spoke. And then for his Greek readers, he provides a translation that for you and I has been translated into English. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? New Testament scholar James Edwards says this, and I don't think I could have said it better. He says, rejected and scorned by Israel, sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome, denied and abandoned by his own followers. Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Its horror is so total that in his dying breath, he senses his separation from God. Think about that. Christ, who we are told in John chapter 1, is always been with the Father. He always is. It isn't as if Jesus was somehow created. Jesus always has been. And throughout all eternity, He has always been in relationship with His Heavenly Father. He has never known at any moment what it was like to not be in perfect relationship with God. From from before the incarnation, when God sent him as a child in Bethlehem, throughout his entire life, he has been in perfect relationship with God. We've seen that. If we read the Gospels, we see that. We see where he steps aside and prays, and we see this intimate relationship that God has with his Heavenly Father. But at the end, at the last moment, his final words are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. You know, there are scholars out there who believe that the the Bible is just a a collection of things that the early church put together to try to make Jesus look good and and that Jesus never claimed to be God and and all these lies that are put out there. If I am in the early church and I'm wanting to make up something about Jesus, These are not the words I make up. His final words are, My God, as he hangs there, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why why am I experiencing this darkness? I have never experienced this darkness before. And yet he does so. He endures that time of separation As he and his heavenly father are separated by our sin. And he does so because that is the separation that ultimately you and I deserve. Notice I didn't say deserved past tense. The separation you and I deserve present tense. He takes on that separation from God so much so that in his final moment, he screams out in pain and anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the final result of sin separation from God. Eternal separation from God. See, people in our world, and maybe some of you, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, you are separated from God. Now, you don't feel, and you don't understand the full implication of that, Because you're still able to enjoy the fact that God is still at work, that God still has his people here, that God is still moving, that God's spirit is still moving among people. And so even if you are separated from God because you don't have a relationship with him, you don't fully understand and and fully comprehend what that means. But ultimately... The consequences of your sin and the consequences of my sin lead to an eternal separation from God. Where for all eternity, we are out of His presence. We don't get to enjoy His things. We don't get to enjoy His presence. We are eternally separated. And so in this moment on the cross, when Christ is enveloped by darkness, where the world has been surrounded and covered by darkness, he experiences the separation from God that you and I rightly deserve. We understand, biblically... That if a person does not repent of their sin and believe in Christ, they will be eternally separated from God with no hope of that relationship ever being restored. That's what Christ experiences on the cross. Though He had done nothing, though He was not deserving of this punishment, This is one of, if not the biggest consequence of sin for all of us. And on the cross, Christ takes that consequence upon himself. When you and I are born, we are born separated from God. And you and I now on this side of the cross, on this side of what Jesus did, we have the opportunity to turn from our sin, to believe in Christ, and have a relationship with Him now that guarantees that we will never be separated from Him. Whether in this life or in eternity to come, we can never be separated from the love of Christ when we turn from our sin and follow Him. But that's only possible because of what Christ does here on the cross. It's not made possible because you show up to church enough. It's not made possible because you are a nice enough person or you do enough good things. It's only made possible because here Christ endures separation from God. Something he had never experienced and something that he did not deserve. See, the world is not concerned about being separated from God because we're born in our sinful nature. We're born sinful. We're born separated from Him. And some people just kind of like it. They don't realize that when it's full and complete and eternal separation from God, it is the worst possible thing, it is unimaginably terrible. It's horrific, it's all the things that, that the Bible describes as hell and torment forever. It's all of those things, but, but people are comfortable with a little bit of that. They're comfortable being separated from Him. Maybe you're comfortable. You, you look at it, maybe you don't know Christ, and you look at it and you say, you know, it's not, it's not really that bad. That preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. I feel like I get to live free. I feel like I get to do whatever I want to. I'm not constrained by by all these religious people. I'm not constrained by all these things that I don't like. I get to do my own thing. I'm not worried about the rest. Friends, this world and the depravity of this world, the evil we see in this world is only a taste of the horror that is to come for those separated from Christ. You don't think this world is a wicked place? Just yesterday, one of our Supreme Court justices died in his sleep. Many people, both sides of the political spectrum were saying just nice things about him, were giving condolences to his family, that's what Normal human beings do, right? Even people we don't really like, we don't rejoice in their, their death. And yet, if you dug a little further, you did see that many people rejoiced. As a matter of fact, at one point on social media, another Supreme Court justice's name was trending, which means it was getting a lot of attention, because others were hoping he would die next. This world is a wicked place. But it's just a foretaste of what it is like when eternal separation from God occurs. And friends, that is coming. Many will enter into eternal separation from God today, having never known Christ, having never heard His name. If you know Christ, you should understand that the reason you are not condemned to be eternally separated from God is because Christ hung on that cross giving His life, uttering these horrific words, feeling abandoned by God for you. And God was willing to send his son knowing that on the cross he would turn his back on him, knowing that on the cross his son would cry out in pain and anguish as he died. God did that for you. He did that because he loves you with extraordinary love that is unmatched by anything you could ever imagine. And there's a result of this Jesus takes on the separation that we deserve he takes it on on the cross and look at the result look at the wonderful result that happens as he takes this on verse 35 and sorry verse 37 and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last he dies. A physical painful death. This is, he doesn't fake. The, the Romans didn't let people fake their, their death. He dies. And two things happen when he dies. Look at the first, the, verse 38 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain or the veil is torn. It's, it's an amazing thing. Again, those who would look at this liberal scholarship, who would look at this, say this doesn't really happen. This is something that's just uh, added on by the early church. But but this is an historical event. And in the moment when this happens, the veil is torn in two. Now, what veil was it? Were there, two veils in the temple. None of the Gospels tell us exactly what it is. The book of Hebrews uh, alludes to it, and so it most likely was the the veil that separated the holy of holies in the innermost part of the temple from everything else. There was an, another veil, also very important. If it was that one, it, I don't think it would lose its meaning. It separated um, It separated the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles out in the temple from the court of the Israelites, which was Um, the place where the Hebrew men could go. And and if it was that one, it definitely signifies that God is opening up to to everyone the gospel. But most likely, the the writers here are referring to the curtain or the veil that separated uh, the Holy of Holies from everything else. The Holy of Holies is the most important room in the temple. It's the, the room where the high priest would go once a year and he would make a sacrifice for all of the people. He would go in and for the sins of of all of God's people, for the nation of Israel, he would go in and he would make a sacrifice. And he had to prepare his own heart to go in and be prepared to offer that sacrifice. And in that room is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled. It's where the mercy seat was. It's where the presence of God was with his people. There in that room. And at the moment when Jesus took his last breath, When he had made full atonement for our sin. When his blood had covered our sin. That veil was torn in two. And that veil being torn in two, it opens up the way to God. It says that no longer do we need a priest who will go in and make atonement for us. Who will go in and intercede on our behalf. At least not an earthly priest because if we look at the line of priests if we look at those who had been charged with that responsibility some of them were great some of them did their job well and then others as we saw just a few verses ago had jesus arrested and beaten and killed Caiaphas had called this group together, the high priest Caiaphas. He had called this group together, and he had been the one who had overseen the execution of Jesus. And so when that veil is torn, top to bottom, it it shows that God is opening the way for us. Opening the way that we might have a relationship with God. By taking on the separation from God that we saw in the verses before. Now Jesus has died and by dying opens the way for you and I to have a relationship with God. Not only in that moment is he the high priest. The book of Hebrews tells us who has went in and who has uh, offered this sacrifice once and for all. Sacrifice that will never need to be offered again. But he was also the Sacrifice. The cross becomes the mercy seat. Christ offers Himself to be the sacrifice to die in our place. It's why we do not go once a year, once a month, once a week and offer a sacrifice for our sin. What sacrifice could we offer that would be better than the sacrifice that has already been offered? What sacrifice could we give that is better than the one that God gave on our behalf. There's no comparison. It's not even close. We therefore do not go and make a sacrifice because Christ has made the sacrifice and was the sacrifice for us. And we see that revealed in this moment where he takes his last breath and the veil is torn, and the way to God is then made open. It's why I, as your pastor, do not serve as your priest. You do not need me to go and make intercession for you. You do not need to come to me to confess your sin so that I can then tell them to God. You are able to tell them directly to Christ. The Bible now presents Christ as our high priest. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And he has taken on that role. The role that we see in the Old Testament, early in the New Testament, of the priest interceding for the people has been eradicated. It's been done away with. It is not useful anymore. It is of no purpose. We don't need it. Because Christ has done it. He went into the Holy of Holies and He offered Himself up so that we could therefore have a relationship with God. Jesus was separated from Him on the cross. We joined with him when the veil is torn. Friends, it's one of the reasons that there's, there's no excuses that are valid. I've had friends and family before who, they, they felt like their relationship with God was, was somehow messed up because of their pastor or somehow messed up because of something going on in their church or something like that friends that's no longer an excuse you know when the priest in the old testament led the people of god astray you you would think they could stand there and say hey listen you know you send this this guy and he he messed it up he was our only option You know, he was the only one that could have this relationship. We go back to the book of Exodus and we see where the people are standing at the foot of this mountain and they have this opportunity to have a personal interaction with God and they say it's too terrible. We we can't do it. It's too much. We don't want to see this. We we, we don't feel worthy enough to do this. And so they end up with this system of priests who go and and take care of their problems for them. They bring the sacrifice and the priest will offer it and they go through this whole ritual that's all been done away with. Now each one of us is called upon to have a personal relationship with Christ. We understand that we have a community relationship with Christ through our church. We understand that we have a community relationship with Christ through the church body as a whole. We can go anywhere in the world, and if we meet someone who has a relationship with Christ, we understand that we have that in common. We may be different in our language. We may be different in our culture But we are the same in Christ. We've been made the same. We can have this relationship. We're part of the same family. But friends, your relationship with Christ, the one that he won for you, meant that you didn't have to go through anybody else. Nobody else has to be responsible. You don't have to put your trust in anyone on this earth. You can put your trust fully in Christ. And we know we can go to him with confidence That when we pray to him, he hears us. When we ask things from him, he hears us. We know that he is trustworthy to go in before God and plead our case. That ultimately on that day when it's decided who spends an eternity with him and who has been separated with him forever, he'll look at us, Christ does, and he sees the blood that has been applied to our heart and he says, this one is mine. God, this one is mine. This one belongs to me because I was faithful on the cross. This one belongs to me because I was faithful in the face of death. This one belongs to me because I endured separation from you so that they would not have to. This one is yours. This one is mine. This one belongs to us. That's offered to you. The veil has been torn, the curtain torn in two, and therefore God has opened up the way to him. You don't have to pray to anybody else. You don't have to pray to some saint to interact on your behalf. It's not necessary. There's been a lot of great people throughout the history of the church. But do you know who they call upon? They call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Would you want to call on anybody else when you have the ability to call upon Christ himself? It doesn't have to be a saint. It doesn't have to be an apostle. You can call upon Christ. Jesus' last breath provides salvation when the veil is torn. It also provides salvation in offering new life. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Christ's obedience to death now is a sign to life. Christ's obedience to death is now a sign to Life. The cross is proclaiming life. The centurion has no doubt been through this entire ordeal. He has seen all that has happened to Jesus. He was there as Jesus was tried. He has been there as Jesus has been beaten and crucified. He is there overseeing this entire process. And in that moment, when Jesus takes his last breath, he gives this confession. And it's hard to say this man we, we don't know anything about him, we don't know anything about his background, we don't know that he, is, he is, uh, becomes a, a Christian or a leader in the church or anything like that, but we know that he has this confession. Does he fully understand what he is saying? I don't know. I don't know his heart, I don't, I don't know where this is coming from. He lives in a time when people believe there were many sons of God, where there were many very religious and devout people who they might ascribe that title to. I don't don't know if that's what he's doing, or I don't know if he has full recollection or full understanding of what is going on and what God has just done. But we're reminded again of Paul writing to the church at Corinth. But to those who are called, Paul says, but to those who are called, talking about the cross, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Christ crucified, is what Paul proclaimed. And it was looked at as ignorance, stupidity, folly, to use a a word that may be more biblical, folly. Folly. It was just, it was out of the question for the Greeks and the Jews, or for for Gentiles and Jews, if you will, to believe this. I mean, the Bible said, cursed is the man who dies on a tree. So the Jews couldn't accept that Jesus is somehow Savior. He was cursed by God. He died on a tree, which is exactly what happened. It's exactly what they needed to happen. For the Greeks, for the Romans, for the Gentiles, it was it was crazy to think that that someone who had died in such a horrific manner for a horrific crime would be a hero. I mean, their heroes are going to die in battle. Their heroes are going to stand up and and be great soldiers, mighty men. Jesus was a, a humble carpenter who was executed. And yet, Paul reminds his readers that the cross is the very thing that is power. The cross of Christ is where we find our power because the cross of Christ is where we find forgiveness of our sin and a relationship with God. And so in that moment when he dies, the veil is torn, the cross becomes the sign of salvation. And that's what this man sees. He sees Christ hanging upon the cross. He's seen the way that he has carried himself throughout this entire process. He's not begged for his life. He's not tried to lie to get his, his, himself out of this. He sees the dedication that this man has had throughout this entire experience, and it comes to the end, and he sees the way that he dies, and he realizes there is something different. Friends, that's what the cross does. The cross is not logical. There there are some things about our faith that that are logical and make sense, of course, throughout the entire biblical storyline. We see the same God doing the same type work through the entire Bible. God is not illogical. God is not chaotic. But friends, the cross is never going to make sense apart from the saving power of Christ. It's just not. It's not going to make sense. It's never going to make sense to the world outside of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit pointing them toward their need for salvation. It'll never make any sense. If it did, the world would not be so opposed to the cross of Christ. The world would not be so opposed to fighting against the things of God. I read an article this morning where NASA is being sued because in a particular incident, they banned a group of Christians who were meeting uh, there there at NASA who were employees They banned them from using the word Jesus in an email. And one of the Christian legal organizations is taking them to court, saying that's a violation of free speech and freedom of religion, that sort of thing. They banned the word Jesus. Why would they ban the word Jesus? Because still in that name, there's power. Just in that name, Just in hearing that name, people's lives are still being changed. Why? Because of the power of the cross. Because through the cross, we have the power to have a relationship with God. Through the cross, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father because of the cross on which Christ died. Because there's power in that name. And that scares the world. That scares the world to see power in the name of Christ and so as Christ's lifeless body is hanging there on the cross this centurion makes this proclamation, why? because the cross now proclaims life something that the Romans and remember also the Jewish religious leaders, they were in the crowd, they didn't yell for him to be stoned to death they didn't yell for him to be starved to death They didn't yell for him to be hung until he died. What did they yell? They yelled, crucify him, correct? They picked it. They decided. They wanted this method of torture. The Jewish religious leaders and the Romans, they decided on this method of death. And now, through the power of God, this symbol of death has become a symbol of life. Immediately. It's not... It's not later. We think about all the things that do happen later. We we think about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We think about um, uh, the Pentecost experience and all of the preaching uh, that happens there and all the, the hundreds and thousands of people that are saved. But here, immediately, which is very appropriate for Mark's gospel because he loves everything to be immediate. Immediately, the cross becomes a sign of life. This man makes a proclamation. I don't know how far it took him. I don't know how far he went with it. I don't know if it was the one time thing and or he became a person of of faith. But in that moment, when Christ took his last breath, the cross becomes a symbol of life. So how do we respond? We see three total responses, and we'll look at them briefly. Three total responses to to Christ and what is going on in the cross. The first is in verse 35 and 36, so just before Christ died. There are some bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. They misunderstood apparently uh, what he was saying when he said uh, Eli, Eli back when he was speaking in Aramaic. They they misunderstand that, I guess, as a a call for um, Elijah. Or they're just mocking him. Maybe a combination of both. What do they do? This is one response you can have. You can misunderstand and mock Jesus. They say, hey, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They mock it. hey, don't die yet. Don't die yet. We want to see if something happens. Maybe Elijah will come. We want to see a show. Mockery, misunderstanding. There's a lot of that. The world does that. There's a lot of church people or churches that do that, that are constantly mocking Jesus, mocking Christians, misunderstanding who he is, presenting false information about Christ and about what he is doing. That could be your response. Your response to Jesus taking on separation from God for you, this response to the life-giving factor of the cross of Christ, you could respond with misunderstanding, which you shouldn't do because when you're here this morning, it's been made kind of clear to you what this is, or you could mock it. That's what the world does. Yeah, Jesus got caught up in a political thing, and it's unfortunate that he died because he he was a pretty good teacher. It's old fashioned. It's religious. It's all been disproven. Miracles don't happen. You could buy into that. You could believe that. And that would be your choice. That would be your opportunity, but it's not the proper response to what Christ has done on the cross. A second response we see. Verse forty through forty one, and then again at the end of the chapter. And there were women looking on at a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. And when he came to Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. They're all at a distance. You know, in some ways, this is good. They're, they seem to be closer than his disciples. But it's also not the proper place to respond to the message of cross. To stand off at a distance. We see in verse 47, if you look at the very end, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They they kind of follow along enough to kind of see what is happening. And they see where they they put him. But they're they're still, you know, they're kind of standoffish. A lot of people are right here. I mean, a lot of people are scared. The disciples are scared. We find them in in John's gospel hiding in the upper room. They're worried that they're going to be next. And that is and that's a response to Christ. To stand off. To stay out of it. Kind of do your thing, but, but not get involved. We'll read next week when we look at the end. We we don't have record of, of the women going and telling about Jesus. It's what they were told to do, but it's not what they do. That's a response. It's one that many people do and many people try, and, and it, is, it is a response. You can stand off from afar and, and kind of look. But there's a third response. And it comes from an unlikely place. We read there in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, courage, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and some of the centurion he asked him whether he was already dead and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead he granted the corpse to Joseph and Joseph bought a linen shroud taking him down wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that he had been cut that he had cut out of the rock and they rolled the stone against against the entrance of the tomb Joseph of Arimathea Have we been introduced to him yet is the great disciple? Like he he was one of the 12, right? Surely he was one of the disciples who followed Jesus in from from another part of the, the country. We don't have record of any of that. This guy was looking for the kingdom of God. The Bible says he took courage. And he took Jesus down off the... I mean, think about this. This exposes him. He's a member of the council. You know, was he there? Was he there when they condemned Jesus to death? Same council. If he wasn't there, at at, at a minimum, his buddies, his friends, who he's on the council with, had just convicted this guy and sentenced him to death. But the Bible says he took courage and he went to Pilate he got permission to have the body of Jesus. He goes and he takes it down. Now, I mean, he shouldn't even be doing this. From a purification standpoint, he's, he's got all kinds of problems. He's touching a dead body. He takes Jesus he buys. He buys a shroud. He takes Jesus down, and he buries him in a tomb that he owns. And he has a stone put in front of it. This is not one of his disciples. This is not one of his followers. Now remember, all the followers of Jesus have run off. They're they're standing back from afar. They're looking on. The the ladies see where he's buried. the, The 12 or 11 now with Judas dead. Where are they at? That's the third response to Christ. You can take courage. You can mock him and misunderstand him. That's a response. You can stand off from afar. That's a response. Or you can take courage. That's the response Christ is looking for. Christ endured separation from God in the darkness for you. He endured the pain and anguish of the cross. He endured the mockery of the cross. He endured the death of the cross for you. And the calling on our life is to then take courage. If you have a relationship with Christ, if he has saved you from being separated from God, if he has saved you and redeemed you from your sin, take courage. Don't be afraid. Jesus would would reiterate this to his disciples many times. Do do not be afraid. I'm with you. In the Great Commission, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Friends, that's the option that Christ desires for us. If we have been found in him, if we have a relationship with him, then we must then take courage. We must not be afraid to tell others what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have experienced. We must not be afraid of that at all. We must take courage. We must be found in Christ. We I, I don't want to say we, I, when I read this passage it's so convicting because i realize how puny and pathetic my faith is compared with even this guy who we don't know that he has a relationship with jesus He is so inspired, if you will, by what happens that he is moved to make sure that this man is not left hanging on this cross. He's moved to take him down and make sure that he receives a proper burial. He takes courage, even though, again, it it could be unpopular. It will not be well received. Many will wonder why he did that. Will they look at him next? Will he be charged with conspiring with this man who has committed blasphemy, this man who has apparently stood against Rome? Is is that what he's going to be charged with next by coming forward? He he sets all of that aside and he, he, he takes courage. You and I have a responsibility to do the same. Christ endured separation from God so that we might be joined to God. And anyone who is joined to God wants to share about that relationship with God. Anyone who has been joined to God will be changed by God. The offer of salvation that has been given to us was very expensive for God. It might be a free gift for us, but it cost God his son. I heard one time a man who was very uninformed in the things of God. That's to put it very nicely. He looked at the end of the Gospels, he looked at the crucifixion, and he really didn't think it was a big deal. This was a guy going to church. I mean, this wasn't like you know some foul pagan somewhere. This was, this was a guy going to church. He looked at the end, he said, you know... Wasn't really a big deal. I mean, God knew He's going to bring him back in three days. God knew it wasn't a big deal. God knew He could raise him from the dead. Not not a biggie. Really? Let me have one of your kids this morning. Let's just beat him for a few hours. Let's hang him up there on the cross. Let them suffocate. I promise we'll bring them back in three days. I can give that to you in writing. I can make it a promise. The doctors can tell you how it's going to happen. But is it cool if I do that first? Really? Not a big deal? But here's the reality. I would say that the majority of hours in a day, the majority of days in a week, weeks in a month, months, and a year, and a course, of over the course of our entire lifetime. That's how we treat what we read in these verses. It's not a big deal. Not a biggie. It shouldn't change the way we think and act and live. It shouldn't direct our life. It's not a biggie. And yet it makes all the difference. We have been saved by God. He has given us new life in Christ. And yet we often live as if we are cowards. We join in the mockery, the misunderstanding. If we avoid that, we, we stand over to the side. And we just kind of let life happen. And we try to be good people. When God tells us to take courage. Take courage. Surely you can have the courage of a man who is not one of Jesus' disciples. Because you are his disciple. A man who does not have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within his heart because that's what you have. A man who has not been saved by the blood of Christ because you have. Surely you can have that much courage. That's what Christ is calling us to. Now some of you... You do not have a relationship with Christ. You you don't know Him. You've not found the forgiveness. You remain separated from God. I want to tell you this morning, look, look at how much God loves you. I mean, sometimes when we're different places in the Bible, we We we, we might struggle to to see the connection. You might struggle to see the connection back to the cross and the connection to what Christ has done for you, And, and maybe then it doesn't have a lot of impact. Look at these verses. This is how much God loves you. He loves you so much that while you were separated from him, you were running from him, doing your own thing, living your own way, going in your own direction, he sent Christ to die for you. He sent Christ to die on your behalf. This this bloody affair that we see here in chapter 15, it was all carried out so that you could have forgiveness of all that you had done. As Christ hung there on the cross, all of your sin, all of my sin, all all of the world's sin was placed upon him. And he endured. He endured that separation. Because he loves you. If you do not know him, what a day it is today to trust in him because you have seen his amazing love for you. Love that is unmeasured. You know, today's Valentine's Day, and what a what a terrible day this has become uh, for actually demonstrating what love is. If you read my newsletter article this month, which was obviously. Uh, a lot of humor meant there in thinking about um, the world and what the world sees as love. And it's, it's, it's fake and it's superficial. And, and if you look at people on social media today who say they love whoever, six months later, they'll be in love with somebody else or they won't love anybody or they'll hate the world, whatever. Christ has demonstrated his love for us and going to the cross, and dying for our sin. If you are not a Christian today, today is the day to trust in Christ. If you are a Christian today, today is the day to take courage and live the life that Christ has for you. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your love and compassion toward us in sending your Son to die in our place. We're grateful that while we run, kick, scream, while we we love our sin as opposed to loving you, you loved us anyway. You sent your son to give us mercy and grace like we could never imagine. God, I know that there are those who gather with us on Sundays who, God, we're glad that they're here, but we know that, God, they do not have a relationship with you, and we just just pray. God, young or old, visitor, church member, whatever their status is in this world, God, that they would address their eternal status. God, you have demonstrated your love on the cross. And Lord, we pray that you would, God, just show it to them this morning. Speak to their heart. God, I know most people here have a relationship with you. They they have for a long time. God, just encourage them to take courage this morning knowing, God, that that you have provided grace and mercy, that you have provided salvation, you have provided us joy and peace. God, I just pray that we would take courage and that we would live our lives God seeking to please you, that we would set aside everything else, everything that God ensnares us and we would pursue your righteousness. God, we thank you for the grace that was poured out on the cross. God, we just pray that we would be people worthy of the grace you have given us through Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing, and as we sing, I just want to invite you to, to respond. God's word calls us to take courage to take courage and to live a life pleasing to him because of the greatness that he has demonstrated to us, the power that we have through Christ. But friends, if you don't know Christ this morning, there's there's no power, there's no future, there's no hope for you being separated from God. It's the worst status you can have in the world. It's, it's the worst place you can be is separated from God. And so I just call upon you this morning to respond to the message of the gospel that, that Christ loved you, and died in your place. God sent a son for that express purpose, and if we turn from our sin and we believe in him, he will forgive us our sin. He'll save us. He'll join us together with God, and nothing can ever separate us from that. Would you respond to God's word this morning as we sing